Welcome to podcast number 36. These podcasts all come from a series of four books I have written entitled In Defense of Christianity. Volume 1, Freedom, is now available in ebook, paperback, and audible at ronaldmesser.com or on Amazon and Audible. Today's podcast is taken from the end notes of Chapter 8, Volume 3, Dishonesty. This podcast is entitled Full Measure. We all have debts to our mothers that can't really be repaid. My mother, along with my father, worked in the cotton mill from midnight to late and slept during the mornings and early evenings. I remember once she and I were walking down Main Street in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I must have been very small because she still held me by the hand. To my embarrassment, she kept that up long after it was necessary. Pappy Galt, a local boxing celebrity, stepped out of a hotel in front of us. My heart jumped when Mother pointed him out. As we passed the hotel, I saw a pocket full of unguarded change lying on the steps. I said, Mother, I better pick that money up before someone else does. It seemed like a perfectly logical conclusion to me. It was clear that someone had been recently sitting on the steps, and the change had fallen out of his pocket. I suppose my intent was to pick it up before the owner got back, though I don't remember being that calculated. I was more worried about those other unscrupulous skimble-scambles like me walking along the street. But Mother neither slowed down nor looked at the steps. She pulled me firmly and authoritatively by the hand and said, No, it is not yours. She didn't elaborate. It was absolute and matter-of-fact, which was always her nature. There's a world of difference between a lecture on honesty and the absolute definitive statement, No, it is not yours. To a child... A reprimand has a kind of here-and-now feel that generates only fleeting guilt, like a morning mist. Its evaporating authority only deals with the present crisis and doesn't spread to the afternoon sunshine and future opportunities. Whereas the statement, no, it is not yours, has a kind of immunity to time and place and carries a universal authority that reaches out over the rest of your life. It established my idea of honesty forever, and I never escaped that statement. I am now approaching 80 years old. A few years ago, I saw some silver coins in the parking lot leading from Bojangles in Charlotte, North Carolina, off Independence Boulevard. I stopped the Toyota pickup, crawled out to pick up the free change, and discovered a battered wallet filled with a driver's license, credit cards, and over $100. I simply called the owner and met her in the same parking lot. For my reward, I received a big hug from a very dignified lady driving a sporty Jeep. And best of all, I also received a promised prayer for my welfare. I hold great stock in sincere prayer, but really she owed her thanks to my mother. I can still see the money on the hotel steps in Spartanburg, South Carolina, as I was dragged along by the hand by my mother. I can still hear her voice declare, No, it is not yours. As vividly now as I did over 70 years ago. My mother died aged 90, but her teachings in my youth will never die. But no less of an example was my father. My mother was a nonstop talker. My father was a very quiet man. Born in Tennessee, he came with his mother and seven brothers and two sisters to South Carolina when he was nine years old. It was during the Depression. Starving, they came to work in the cotton mills. His father, a mountain man, remained behind in Tennessee and wandered the hills the rest of his life in self-exile, living off the charity of others, lost, alone, and homeless. My father loved the land, perhaps more than anyone else I have known. His large garden was always a showpiece. 
I would like to share one incident that marks his honest nature, and one which, though I was an adult, reminded me of my childhood. The incident is significant here because my father, by example, taught the principle of honesty to one of my daughters. It is an example of how virtues, as well as vices, can travel through families for generations. My daughter Natalie and I were tired, our backs aching after spending three hours sitting on wire baskets, bending over the heavy laden rows, picking half runners by the handfuls. It was a hot July day in Charlotte, North Carolina. We headed for the shade, but my father, who had just turned 77, continued puttering. Natalie exclaimed, Doesn't Grandpa ever run out of energy? My father has always enjoyed a garden. Even as a child in South Carolina, I admired the richness of his tomatoes, carrots, beans, onions, cucumbers, peanuts, and corn. His corn stalks always seemed to grow higher, his plants greener than those in other gardens. People came from all over to admire his garden. His secret? He speaks to his plants. If a plant appears wilted, he will tickle the stalk with his finger and, as if speaking to a child, say, You can do it. I know that you can do it. By his testimony, the plant always responded, and the next day it was competing for space with the others. We picked about six bushels of beans in the hot July sun, dumped the beans bucket after bucket into a wheelbarrow. When the wheelbarrow was full, we dumped the beans onto a white sheet spread out on the ground in the shade of a large pecan tree. A bushel of beans becomes precious when picked in the Carolina heat, yet they only sold for $15 a bushel at the farmer's market. My thought was to dump the beans into bushel baskets, level off the top, and buyer beware. After all, I had worked in the peach orchards as a kid. My job was to dump the bushel baskets full of disoriented, sorry-looking bulk, and then place the largest, juiciest peaches on top to deceive the buyer. But when we finished picking the beans, my father had me sit with him under the pecan tree inspecting each bean for dirt and mold and bug bites and wet rot. I got 40 bushels from the garden one year, he said proudly. We couldn't hose the beans down for fear of the white, furry mold that grows so quickly on a fresh green bean when wet. The mold resembles the spittle bug and spreads rapidly, destroying the entire bean and any other beans around it. So we carefully wiped the red clay off each bean, individually with a dry paper towel. I'm glad I don't have to do this each time, he said. We broke off any wormholes or rotting spots and threw away any bean that had dried and turned white. We threw away those that were too small or otherwise undesirable. They won't be wasted, he said. They'll just make the soil richer. When one basket was full, I started another, making the bushel stretch. My father picked up the bushel basket and shook it vigorously, making the beans settle so he could get more in. I like to give full measure, he said. He rounded the basket off so full that the beans had to be placed carefully to keep them from falling on the ground. I began putting my beans into another basket. My father continued to stack the beans in the bushel basket until it could hold no more. The six bushels were reduced to five, but that seemed irrelevant to him. We drove the beans to the farmer's market. We approached a merchant, a short, paunchy, bearded man caught up in his trade. With a poker face, he began to bargain. I've been given $12 for beans. I can get them for $12, he said slightly. I have to have $15, said my father, in a quiet, disarming, but uncompromising tone that I was used to. My father had been a merchant all his life. Even when working in the cotton mill, my father ran the canteen. Later, he owned a hamburger stand and ended his career operating his own small grocery store. My father was a quiet man, perhaps the quietest person I've ever known. 
but he lived majestically. He knew value instinctively. The merchant, with a salesman's instinct, followed my father to his old GMC pickup, repeating the $12 offer unchallenged. His speech was calculated, practiced, as one who argued the price by habit. My father let down the gate and revealed the bushel baskets. The merchant's mood changed. He expressed surprise. He snapped a bean. The bean popped. The fresh juice sprayed. Defeated, he silently carried the beans to his bin and paid my father $15 per bushel. On the way home, my father said, he quit arguing when he saw they were rounded off. The merchant would find something else when he emptied the baskets. The beans on the bottom and in the middle would be just as large, just as fresh, just as healthy, and just as clean as the ones visible on top. Because my father his entire life had lived by that code. I like to give full measure. My father died at age 82 of a stroke. I am reminded of the words of Paul, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Imagine our world if we all, including leaders in government, business, and communities, renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, or we're not guilty of walking in craftiness. What if, by manifestation of the truth, we were commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God? By the fraudulent separation of church and state, thrust upon us by godless politicians and special interest groups seeking power, we're being robbed of the practical side of religion. Honesty is at the heart of all good communications. Communication without honesty is like fruit that appears ripe and delicious on the outside, but on the inside it is rotten to the core and is good for nothing but to spit out of one's mouth. The laws of God are not abstractions of platitudes taught to children. They are practical ways of achieving a society where man can realistically accomplish the high-minded goals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Other than obedience to the laws of God, there is no way to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I would like to present as a metaphor a comical experience that my daughter Sue and I had in Rome, Italy, in a park outside the door of the Vatican Wall. A thousand times since, I have thought about it, laughed about it, talked about it, and yet each time its importance has grown in my mind. A wizened old lady operated a fruit stand in a shaded park. She looked shriveled and ancient. I purchased a bunch of bananas from her. Some of the bananas in her small stall were black, so I pointed out three or four yellow ones that were exactly what I wanted. With the toothless smile of a sly witch and the dexterity of a magician, she double-bagged the bananas, putting the spoiled ones I refused in the same bag beneath the yellow ones I had chosen. She did it swiftly and with such dexterity that I couldn't be sure of what I had seen. Her elderly appearance commanded some respect and displayed a dark innocence that betrayed her intent. And though it has always been my nature to show immediate contempt for those who openly try to cheat me, I reserved judgment and gave her the benefit of the doubt. She weighed the bag and charged me according to the weight. I paid her the lira she demanded. I remember you telling me this story. When you got to the park to eat the bananas, you discovered that you had purchased a bunch of near-rotten bananas with a bunch of fresh ones on top. I didn't have the heart to go back and confront the crafty old Shylock, 
It seemed ludicrous considering the small amount and her age. Besides, the coins to me were foreign, and foreign coins always seem counterfeit with no perceived value. In fact, even the lira no longer exists. It has been replaced with the euro. I'm sure you laughed about it as you ate the good bananas. The funny part is that I kept the overripe bananas because they were partially edible. Ironically, later when Sue and I were famished and no shop was open, the bananas came to our rescue. So now you can actually praise the elderly lady? Well, somewhere in my heart, I may have thanked her for feeding me when I was hungry, and no stands were available, but I have berated her ever since for cheating me. Her dexterity showed that she had cheated her way through life one lira at a time till it was complementary to her nature. It was as if her hands acted on their own. Like a fish that swims in a polluted pond, she blended with her environment and became one with her nature. One can only imagine how many tourists she has cheated over the past 50 years. But the amounts are always so small that no one really notices. It merely becomes part of the local color of life. You and I have been around the world, and the truth is that we have been cheated in every country we have visited. Cheating has become a way of life everywhere. Yes, but we've also been met with enormous kindness. Remember in Paris, France, a very dignified lady, a perfect stranger, tried to give us directions. We did not speak French, and she did not speak English. She altered her agenda and got on the subway with us and took us to our destination. I will never forget her kindness. We were Americans on sabbatical living in France during the 9-11 tragedy, and everywhere we went, we were subjected to bias and sometimes hatred almost daily. I do remember the bus driver who took us out of our route and tried to get us arrested. When my hands were full of groceries, he would slam the door, catching me, not allowing me to get off, and then life almost diabolically. I remember that night after night, he drove past our regular stops, making us walk further. Yet the kindness of the French people, as illustrated by that Parisian, seems to pop up everywhere, trying to make us feel welcome. We were ready to come home, but such kindness saved our trip. I must admit that the rudeness of some was offset by the kindness of the majority. I do remember, however, that the entire subway burst into laughter when a pickpocket on a Paris subway stole all our museum tickets we had purchased only hours before. He timed the theft perfectly with the opening of the subway door. Yes, I remember that. We had just purchased three packets at $75 each. They hadn't even been unwrapped. I think the laughter of the people on the subway bothered me more than the theft. They didn't appear to realize the financial burden it was to us to replace the tickets. Oh, well, we learned to travel craftily. I still believe in the basic goodness of people. In fact, I have thought about my banana salesman a thousand times in philosophical amusement. She stole pennies from me, but how many thousands of other customers has she cheated over her lifetime? Can cheating become such a habit that it is not even considered a crime? A thief appears to have no conscience for the victims. They are mere sheep to be fleeced. Does it become part of moral relativity, a kind of Robin Hood justice, that which is yours should be mine? Except in scope, is the poor old banana saleswoman's crime morally different in intent from those Ponzi schemes that built billions from innocent investors, causing many to lose their retirement? Justice, of course, will require full measure. The greater the evil, the greater the punishment. However, is theft only bad when the victim suffers? 
Or is theft itself the primary evil? Because even if others don't suffer, what about the withering of one's own soul? Like carrion birds, they feed on death. Is living a lie not a kind of spiritual death? Remember when thieves kicked our front door down while we were away, entered our home and helped themselves to whatever they wanted, tools, electronics, keepsakes? They were never caught. Can success be measured by competence rather than by character? Is slipping by the law the only standard of judgment? Of course I remember. The insurance paid the estimated damage, and life went on, but it leaves one feeling vulnerable. Besides, interest rates go up and everyone suffers. It's like shoplifting. An item here and an item there seem nothing to the thief. Yet the merchants can't pay for it. Therefore, they raise the prices and make the honest customers pay for it. It raises the economic tide a little at a time. We don't see it until suddenly it overflows the banks and seeps into our sleeping lives. And the constant ebb and flow washes away all our income and savings. It bothers me that in theft there appears to be no conscience, no thought of consequences to the victims, and no accountability. Shakespeare's characters have become my intellectual companions. I often think of the comment of Falstaff to young Prince Harry. Falstaff was a professional thief. Justifying his behavior, he said, Why, Hal, tis my vocation, Hal. Tis no sin for a man to labor in his vocation. Falstaff, who claims that he will repent, never does. His philosophy, like that of my banana saleswoman, has become standard procedure in business and government today, and often in our personal dealings with others. Redistribution of wealth is nothing but robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. But is quid pro quo. The poor must keep them in office or they will take away entitlements. When stealing becomes our vocation, then we forget our crime and praise our own dexterity like Falstaff. We live a lie without being conscious of it. The vice becomes the virtue. I believe that everything we do is registered. In the book of Revelations, John said, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. I often think of Shakespeare's words spoken by Claudio in Hamlet. Quote, In the corrupted currents of this world, offense's gilded hand may shove by justice. And oft, tis seen the wicked prize itself, buys out the law. But tis not so above. There is no shuffling. There the action lies in his true nature. And we ourselves compelled, even to the teeth and forehead of our faults, to give in evidence. Unquote. But you know, I think I will stand up for the banana woman and tell how her rotten bananas kept us from going to bed hungry. But I'm not standing up for the thieves who broke into our home. Christ says that we should forgive our enemies. That's true, and I forgive them. But knowing there's a hell makes it a lot easier to forgive them. Husband, I think there is a disconnect somewhere. Wasn't it you that said that you don't forgive others to heal them? You forgive others to heal yourself. I might have done. Like Sancho Panza, I spit out platitudes here and there in the quietness of my study. But platitudes only work in the abstract. Love is easier when the one you love is lovable, and I hate a thief. The truth is that it is a lot easier to forgive someone else's enemies than it is to forgive your own. Sometimes I think Dante's view of hell is far more attractive when considering my enemies. <laughs>
I think you need to work on charity. We are commanded to forgive our enemies. It would be a lot easier if I knew that God didn't forgive them. How does that song go? Pick pockets roasting on the open fire. I think it's chestnuts roasting on an open fire, and it was meant to be a Christmas carol. Perhaps you should read the Sermon on the Mount again. If you don't forgive your enemies, how can you expect Christ to forgive you? Now you've quit preaching and turned to meddling. How about let's you and I agree that preaching should be for the other guy? How about we get back to the topic? Some thieves reason that stealing from one who can afford it is okay if someone else who needs it, including the thief, benefits. We admire Robin Hood, I guess, but a thief is still a thief. Robbing from the rich to give to the poor is theft, pure and simple. Many politicians have adopted that position. That is okay to take from the rich and give to the poor. Such doctrine is pernicious and denies the existence of absolute law and is destructive to liberty. Though clearly some thefts should carry a much greater penalty than others, and a thief should be burdened by the consequences of their theft, not all thieves are alike. However, stealing is not relative to the theft. Stealing is stealing regardless of the amount. Redistribution of wealth is stealing. Socialism and communism are stealing. Thou shalt not steal is not burdened by conditions. Theft is theft. A thief is a thief. The ramifications of theft will simply carry an extra burden and must answer to a higher law. I was not harmed in the least by the loss of a few liras. On the other hand, how double-bagging politicians steal my tax dollars every day by stealth, greed, avarice, dishonesty, corruption, Negligence, inflation, deception, bribery, gouging, and lies affects my quality of life. During a slump in the market, half of my retirement disappeared overnight, nearly 40 years of savings. When earnings are based on the past, inflation is based on the present, and theft is based on the future, how can faith in money survive? As you so often say, how is it that a merchant can charge 50% less for an item that has no standard price? What is it less than? How many times can a price be reduced before the cost is zero? Our economy is based on Zeno's paradox. How can we get 20% free while paying double the value? Which part of the bottle is free? You do know that you are back on the soapbox. You promise to stay off your soapbox. Might have complained about how merchants reduce the size of potato chip bags so slightly we didn't notice it or how products shrink in size while being inflated in price. Did I tell you about the time in San Francisco, at the wharf, how one salesman advertised 50% off, and the next table sold the same product without a discount for the same price? You couldn't possibly have mentioned it more than two dozen times. Do I detect sarcasm? No, dear. You are right. Honesty must be restored to business, to government, to politics, to everyday negotiations, to the heart of all lovers of freedom. Honesty must become an attitude. Our liberty depends upon it. It must become the first requirement of office. It is more important to know a person's heart than it is to know their politics. To take liberties with an old adage, when it comes to liberty, honesty is the only policy. We could restore liberty to our nation if only we obeyed the last three commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And thou shalt not covet. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast. In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.